The Art of Leadership Network. So my understanding of what, what non-religion is is changing pretty significantly in the last couple of years. And, and really what I'm zeroing in on, especially in the last year or two, I wrote a post for my Substack called Religion as a Luxury Good. Yes. Which, yeah. which went viral, quote unquote, whatever that means. Like not like millions of clicks, but, you know, a lot of clicks for me. And so I make this argument that religion has become part and parcel of people who have done everything right, quote unquote. And what I mean by that is college education, middle class income, married with children. If you check those four boxes, it's also called the golden path. That's what a lot of conservative like economists mm. call that the golden path. If you me- if you meet those criteria, your chance of having good income, you know, good outcomes is much higher. You're much more likely to go to church. This is what people don't understand is like the more education you have, the more likely you are to go to church. The more the 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 ideal combination of of income and education are college degree, four-year college degree, making between sixty and a hundred thousand dollars a year. So for me, what we're seeing to me is the haves and the have-nots are growing larger and larger every year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think this is a serious problem, both pastorally, but also from a social science perspective. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. We are on episode three of our 2024 Church Trends series. You can download the free team guide at the link in the description. And we got a couple more coming up on that one as well. Today's episode is brought to you by Westfall Gold and by AICopilot.church. What if generosity was part of the DNA of your church? Learn more at advance.westfallgold.com or click the link in the description of this episode and check out AI Copilot. If you're ready to dive into AI but not sure how to get started, visit aicopilot.church or click on the link in the description of this episode. Well, today, my guest is Ryan Burge, and we are going to talk about the rise of the nuns, Christianity, is it becoming a luxury good, the threat to democracy with the decline in religion, and why the nuns, which you've heard a lot about, are actually very reachable people. So as I said, this is part three of our Church Trends series, something new we're doing on this podcast to get 2024 kicked off. And I wanted to talk to Ryan because I discovered his Substack and also a couple of books he co-authored and thought, this guy is just brilliant. He is an associate professor of political science at Eastern Illinois University and also a pastor in the American Baptist Church. He's written four books about religion and politics in the United States. And well, we get into the weeds on this one. I think you're really, really going to enjoy it. And if you want to check out the rest of the series, you can go back a couple episodes and stay tuned because we've got one or two more coming your way as well. And of course, we've got a leader guide. You can just click the link in the description to download that for you and your team. So question for you, what if generosity was a part of the DNA of your church? Well, I have partnered with Westfall Gold and leaders like Craig Rochelle and Chris Hodges to create Advance. It's a masterclass video series to help pastors and church leaders grow the courage and the skills to unleash generosity. Now, in this masterclass, you're going to discover how to cast a compelling vision that invites investment, how to make generosity part of the DNA of your church, and how to leverage existing technologies to connect with your givers. I do that section of the course. It's a pretty cool course. 
So check it out. You can learn more at advance.westfallgold.com or simply click the link in the description of this episode. That's advance.westfallgold.com. And then my guess is some of you are thinking about trying out AI finally in 2024. Here's reality. You tried it a little bit before and you're like, yeah, I don't get it or didn't produce what I wanted. Or maybe you're like, yeah, I'm not really sure. Well, I am very excited to announce that my team in connection with the team at church.tech are launching something brand new called AICopilot.church. You can access free AI-powered tools for content creation, decision-making, and marketing with AICopilot.church. Things like a catchy email subject line generator, which you can also try for blog posts and articles and other marketing, an expense versus investment advisor. In other words, if you have to make a proposal to your board, how do you make the best argument? Well, AI can do that for you. It's so simple to use. Check it out at AICopilot.church. And yeah, there are some other resources that you can access as well, where we get into the ethical and theological questions about AI, blog posts that will help you navigate that world. We'll be adding new prompts and improving the site regularly. But in the meantime, you can get started today for free by going to aicopilot.church or simply click the link in the description. Well, excited for this deep dive. Here we go. My conversation with political scientist and pastor Ryan Burge. Well, Ryan, I'm really glad to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, so um, I'd love to start with a bit of background about how you got interested in research and how you found your your current calling, or I don't know, maybe I'd call it obsession. It's great. I love it, man. That's why you're oh, here. Oh, man, I don't even... It, it's a long, strange trip for me, to be honest with you. Um, I don't really know how I... Every step is logical from the prior step, but from like the first step to the 30th step is not logical at all in in a weird way. Mm-hmm. Um, I started out uh, undergrad, didn't know what I was going to do. History major, kind of fiddling around, was a youth pastor. Oh, were you history I and was, political yeah. science? That's my undergrad, history and political science, double buddies. major. I mean, yeah. come on. There no, you history. Go. Like, there you go. But yeah, I agree. A functionally useless 100%, degree. 100%. Like, but you know what? It helped me a bunch mm-hmm. in political science, though, because like, you know, like a lot of what we do is contemporary, but like, it's like, well, what's it's like the election of 1868. And you're like, oh, I know about that. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So I didn't really know what I was going to do. I was a youth pastor intern in undergrad. I grew up in an evangelical church and I really took the gig because I needed a job, to be completely blunt. Um, <laughs> it was a three month internship, you know, just like, a, like, let's just get yeah. the kids through summer. Let's try something out. And then three months turned into three years. Um, as, a, as a youth pastor in a little church in Centralia, Illinois. And then when I went to grad school, um, I switched to being a senior pastor of a little church in, in Marion, Illinois called Warder Street Baptist Church, which actually doesn't even exist anymore. It closed down a couple of years ago. Hmm. Um, and I tried to get away from ministry, to be honest with you. Um, Not alone in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like it kept, <laughs> it's like, it's, it's Calvin's irresistible grace, right? Like drawing uh-huh. me in. Um and so I, I I got an assistantship, which is like a, a job uh, as a grad student to work on campus. And then another church called me and said, "Will you preach once?" And I said, "Yes." Will you preach next Sunday? I said, "Yes." And then all of a sudden, I've I've been there for seventeen years now. Um, so, wow. uh, yeah, I I don't really know how all this happened, but you know, the data thing really happened in the last five or six years. I was really trying to to be something different and learn something different and 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 bring something to the conversation that other people weren't. Mm. And I realized there was a real there's a real dearth of academics in the religion space that were writing for the general public. 
they were more writing for their own people, which is fine. That's just not my bag. Mm-hmm. So I started making graphs, putting them on Twitter. Uh, I'm I, I loved I loved with a past tense Twitter what it mm-hmm. was, not what it is now. That got my start. Tweeted some graphs out. They went viral. And all of a sudden, one thing led to another and more followers and more opportunities. And next thing I know, I'm sitting in a room with Anderson Cooper. And, you know, I've been on the front page of Reddit with 70,000 upvotes and life took a weird turn. And I keep making graphs and keep people keep wanting to read them. So here's where here's where we are. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I discovered you far more recently in terms of your Substack. Right, which means it's very recent because you haven't even been on a year. Yeah, I started in April. I mean, I I wanted to get off of Twitter honestly because I I really don't like what Elon has done with the platform, and um and I also I wanted to control my own destiny more. And Substack is a great way. Emails are the greatest way to communicate with people. That's what I've realized. Like social media, you're at the whims of the corporate leadership. You know, whether it be Meta or Twitter right. or whatever it is, they tweak the algorithm, and you your reach goes away. Um. Email yep. never goes away. Or today you need to be verified. By the way, that's only X number of dollars exactly. a month. Exactly. Yeah. And with Substack, mm-hmm. it's all email. So if I move to another platform, I take my email list with me to the other platform and I own, you know, I own that no matter what happens. And no matter how many times you try to kill email, you can't kill email. It will always exist. It's the cockroach <laughs> of of the digital world, exactly. right? I, you know, you and I are both email evangelists. I was just on a webinar with my academy members, Art of Leadership Academy. I'm like, hey. I went to the top 10 church websites in America, just like in my own head. These are like really big churches with millions of dollars. None of them have an email opt-in on their homepage. I'm like, yeah, exactly, exactly. I'm like, this is the lowest hanging fruit out there. And listen, a lot of them are my friends, all that stuff. But it's like, yeah, email, nobody likes it and everybody uses it. So I get it. 100%. I mean, people are like, I've never seen you before. And they're like, but I get your email every day. And I'm like, wow, you're not on Twitter. You're not on Facebook. You haven't seen me on the this, that. No, I just see you on Substack through my email. Okay. I mean, whatever, whatever it takes to get my work to you, I am more than willing to do that. That's cool. So on Substack, I mean, I'm a novice here. You own the email list? I do, yeah. And I can easily export it. If I move to a new service, just hit export and it just drops it in like an Excel file. Um, I have a paid option and a free option. They take, Substack takes 10% of what you generate revenue wise. And then Stripe takes like 3% on top of that. But you just, it drops right into your account. Now, everyone has a different approach to this. You know, some people are all free. Mm -hmm. And then you can just like a donation for the paid tier. For me, I settled on Monday free, Thursday paid, but I actually show you half of the paid post for free on Thursday, so everyone gets it. They only get to read half of it, no matter what tier you're in. And then after three months, every post goes into the archive after it's been live for three months. So if it was free, then it becomes paid after three months in the archives. Oh, interesting. And are you finding, like, you know, I've done uh, minimal research into this, but what I've seen, about 10% of subscribers go paid That's, on yeah. is that I about think, right? Uh, the, the, the range they give you is between 5 and 10%, and I'm right in the middle of that range. And so okay, cool. it's been good. I mean, growing the free list is good because it just gets more exposure to you. Mm-hmm. And then my my conversion rate's actually gone up slowly over time, and it's turned into like a legitimate side hustle in terms of you know revenue and, and, and readership, and it's becoming more established. You know, like my, my academic friends get mad at me. Like, why would you put some of your work behind a paywall? I go, you publish in academic journals all the time that are behind paywalls. And Ooh. you don't make any money off of that. 
Like it, the the journal uh-huh. editor makes all the money off that. You make nothing. So why not me do that on my own and make my own revenue stream off the things that I create? Academics are not we're not trained to think that way. We're trained to think like you get a salary and then you give everything else away. I don't think that's the model going forward for most of us because what we do, at least what I understand, what I do creates value for people and that value is attached to monetary compensation. So just get over the awkwardness of it and say, if you think this is worth it, it's five bucks a month, 50 bucks a year. You get all this content, a hundred posts a year, 600 graphs, you know, whatever it's going to be, that's all available to you if you pay. So Right. How do you determine, um, cause we do have a lot of entrepreneurial leaders listening who have side hustles. How do you determine what goes out there for free and what you put behind the paywall? That is the hardest thing. So I know, um, here's yeah. where I've landed on that. The stuff that's really poppy, yeah. like that will like hit the widest audience goes on the Monday free. Right. So, so if I'm talking about like the, mm, like a post about evangelicalism as a political identity, like that's a Monday mm-hmm. post because it's really poppy and like the New York Times wants to talk about that and I know they're really tuned into that. Now, a Thursday post, like I have a post running this Thursday where I try to estimate the number of people in the pews in like the 10 largest Protestant denominations in America. That is not as poppy, but for a certain segment of my readership, I know they really want to know those numbers like that for their own personal knowledge or edification or whatever it is. So that's a Thursday because it's kind of more in the weeds. It's more denominational. Mm-hmm. So usually my Thursday posts are more targeted towards a religious demographic and my Monday posts are more for like a broad demographic. Wow. Okay. That's super helpful. We want to dive into the weeds today. And uh, I want to talk about methodology first because it seems to me, I don't know, maybe I'm just like this is a perception issue and it's not actually reality, but everybody seems to be running surveys these days and, you know, all that stuff. So you've got some training in this, but what, and we've had just had, like, by the time this airs, we all have just had an episode with David Kinneman, good friend for many years, you know, Barna, polling, scientific samples, the whole deal. What makes for reliable, bankable data in your view? That's a great question. Um, one one hallmark is it being publicly available definitely gives you a feeling of more authenticity because it means someone can come in behind you and check your work to make sure it makes sense and then compare your data with other data sets to see if the variables sort of shake out in a similar way, right? Right. We call that replicability. Okay. So, you know, if you're willing to show me that your data is replicable, then in my mind, the authenticity of it and the validity of it go up dramatically. Because now it's not, I'd actually did that in a post last week. I compared data I usually use called the cooperative election study against Pew data, which is considered like the gold standard in what we do to show you where my data is different than theirs and why I think it's different than theirs. And it is a little bit. And I'm just clear about that. Like there there are differences. I can't Mm. really figure out why, but here they are. So transparency and openness. You also got to think what's the purpose of this survey? Because sometimes what PR firms do now is run surveys to like use as a hook for PR pieces. Yep. yep. Those are almost totally. never. That's why I'm asking the yeah, question. Those are mm-hmm. almost never scientifically valid. Um, if it's done by an academic, there's a really good chance they're trying their very best to make it academically rigorous. So for instance, the great de-churching, which I think we're going to talk about a little bit. I mean, those surveys, yeah. we spent a lot of money with a very reputable survey firm called Qualtrics 
to make them as good as they possibly. This is not like a Google form or a survey monkey, you know, where we just kind of right. blast it out to random people. Or I asked, yeah, I asked, I put a, you know, Instagram poll up and, you know, survey says. Exactly. Like, right? Those are great. Yeah. Like you can write great blog posts about those, but those are not scientifically rigorous. And so almost all the data I use is open source A and B has been published in academic journals. That same kind of data set's been published. So that I use really the same data that academics use almost all the time. And that to me is 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 the gold standard is would this would this land in a peer-reviewed journal or not? And a lot of the stuff that you see, especially in the in the Christian sphere, unfortunately, would would not meet that criteria. Hmm. Hmm. So your research strives to meet that criteria. Could be used in a peer-reviewed journal. So like one weird niche that I'm in right now is is Christians will come to me and want to do a survey, but wanted to have that higher level of authenticity than they've seen in other work. And so like I've become like the stamp, which I take really seriously, by the way. Like the work I Your name is your brand, right? And trust. And your trust. Exactly right. Like that's how the great detergent, that's how my name got on it, actually. Initially, I wasn't supposed to be on the cover of the book, but then we realized, wow, you're doing a lot of work for this, and it will increase the veracity of the book, but also will increase my profile. So it's like a win-win for both sides. So I'm working with a lot of different organizations right now on how to build surveys in a more academically rigorous way that will actually get play outside the Christian evangelical ecosystem. And this is still a, a side hustle for you? Like this is your hobby? Yeah, uh, I've got I've got like four jobs at this point and it's I was going to say, you are a very busy guy. I try to be. I mean, if I get, bo- yeah. if I get bored, bad things happen. Like, um, you know, like mental health wise, I need to be busy. Like vacations are hard for me. Um, I am a workaholic. I'm a, a self-identified workaholic, but I read something really interesting that says, you know, workaholics are always, it's always seen as a negative thing, but if you love what you do and it gives you life and gives you purpose and you still are balancing other things in your life, then work as much as you can or much as you want to. And that's kind of where I'm at in my life right now. You know, that's an interesting uh, tweak on the definition, you know, because if it's not harming the people closest to you, my workaholism was harming the people closest to me, my wife, my kids, uh, people around my team. So I found, you know, I'm a recovering workaholic. But I think you're right. Like, you know, I, I argue there's no such thing as a balanced life, just a passionate one. And my passions have gone in different directions over the last few years. But like, yeah, this is a work of passion. And my problem is I could still not shut the laptop, although I'm getting better at it, getting better at it. I, so, I, 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 here's what I think. Academic wise, there's a window for us where we're the most productive and it's not that big. It's like five to seven years. And so like, I need to blow it out while I still feel like I want to do that because at some point I'm going to turn down a little bit. So produce as much yeah. as I can in this window of my life and then slow down as I get older. And right now it's full speed ahead. That's interesting. How old are you? 41. 41. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's that prime season, right? Yeah. Academics, we peak late, Carrie. Like we're, we're not 22, you know, like honestly between like 35 and 45 is when most academics are their most productive. We know that. So yeah. I really want to put, keep my foot on the gas for as long as I can through my forties. And then in my fifties, I'll probably cruise a little bit and write on my name a little bit and probably produce less stuff but maybe, you know, more meaningful stuff to me. I don't know. But in this season, I'm not bored of this. And that's a blessing to me. One day I will be, but it's not today. This is a great conversation. Are you familiar with the work of Arthur Brooks? Absolutely, yeah. His, uh, yeah, his yeah. speech, The National Prayer Breakfast, I love that a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. So um, strength to strength, you're just moving into your peak years. Yeah. And all of this data that you're producing will move to 
uh, crystallized intelligence rather than fluid intelligence. We had him on last year along with Jim Davis, by the way. That's what I love about having a uh, not at the same time, but two separate episodes, Jim Davis and Arthur Brooks. And so you guys can scroll through the archive and find those conversations. All right, but I want to get to The Nuns. So your book, The Nuns, first edition, second edition is out now, came out a few years ago. Uh, what was true then? And then why the need? First of all, describe what The Nuns are. Give us a framework for it. I think a lot of people will have heard about it. Um, but then I, I want to know why the second edition. Yeah, so nuns, N-O-N-E-S. I have to spell it every time. need a tattoo yeah, it on yeah. my forehead. Uh, it's not the little Catholic ladies who teach school. It's it's non-religious people. So the way we define it is three categories, atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. And we get that literally from the survey responses. That's you get what's your present religion of any. You get a bunch of options, Protestant, Catholic, Muslim, Hindu, Mormon, Buddhist. Last three are atheist, agnostic, nothing in particular. You pick one of those three boxes, and we put you in the category of none. By the way, I did not coin the word none. It has existed since at least 1968. I just saw a reference to it today when I was doing some research. So it's been around for over 50 years. I just kind of put it on the cover of a book and made it front and center um, in American life. First book came out two years. It came out in 2000, uh, 2021. And then, you know, what? that data only went to 2018. And so th there's two or three more years of data I could add to that. And the pandemic happened. And my editor was like, don't you want to write about like what the pandemic did for American religion, good, bad, and indifferent? And I was like, yeah, I really do. I don't want to write a whole book about that because I just don't think there's enough there yet. So I added a chapter just about the pandemic to the end of the nuns. I updated every graph in the nuns. So in a lot of sections, there's like two graphs. Now there's four graphs. So hmm. after you talk about something like I did, you know, 75 podcasts and interviews and talks and you think about it in a different way and the questions come at you and, you, and it kind of turns the way you understand certain topics. And I thought, I want to, I'm evolving in how I think about this, the nuns, and I want you all to evolve with me. I want to, you know, show you more of what I'm seeing in the data now and understanding more about non-religious people. And so the second edition was just more, more, more of what the first edition was. And I think it's actually a better volume because it's just more data analysis, more thoughtful analysis. And I think it's a, a more in-depth analysis of the nuns. Yeah, so what was the big headline with the nuns, and then how has it evolved over the last couple of years? Yeah, so it started with a tweet, Carrie, like all good things start with. Um, in 2019, I had like 600 Twitter followers. I tweeted out a graph that um, was about the American religious landscape. A new The GSS, General Social Survey, just came out, new edition. And I just ran the basic RELTRAD graph, is what it's called. Put it online, and this is only going to do like 140 characters, so it was like, big news. The nuns are now bigger than any other religious group or whatever it was. And that just took off and never stopped. Like it, like in the first 10 minutes, like 25 retweets, I got five retweets on something. I was jumping up and down in those days. So like that was huge. And the next morning it was like 300. The next day it was like 500. The next day it was a thousand. It just kept going and going. And like it would stop for a while. Then Sam Harris, the famous atheist would retweet it. And there mm -hmm. we go again. And the New York Times called, the Washington Post called, the Times of London called. Like I, I, I was talking to, I'd never talked to the media before. And now I'm talking to them three times a day. So that is why I wrote the book because I knew that people really cared about this stuff. I went, you know, Wayne Gretzky says, don't go where the, don't skate where the puck is, skate where the puck's going. And that's where it's going. Like I just saw all the interest going in that direction. I thought I have the tools to answer those questions in a fun, interesting, engaging, accessible way. So let's write the book. 
And and from that point forward, God bless the nuns, they keep rising, which means I keep having a job. You know, they're mm. they're um, amongst Generation Z now. At least forty percent of Generation Z are non-religious, um, but it's rising among every uh, age group. It's not just uh, younger people; it's older people too. It's not just whites; it's it's people of color. It's it's not just Rep- Democrats; it's Republicans. I mean, I I really do think it's the most important cultural shift in America in the last fifty years. And not many people are writing about it in a compelling, accessible, interesting way. Yeah, your writing is, for those who may not be familiar with your book or, or with your online writing, very accessible. I mean, it's academic data, but like it's a fun read. And you can tell that you're, 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 you're an excellent writer. You make it, um, you don't dilute it, but you make it very accessible, which I, is something I really appreciate. That's why I link to you a fair bit in some of the work that I do. Um, how is the story evolving, even in the last, like since that first 2019 finding to edition one to edition two? What are you seeing? So my understanding of what, what non-religion is, is changing pretty significantly in the last couple of years. And, and really what I'm zeroing in on, especially in the last year or two, I wrote a post for my Substack called Religion as a Luxury Good. Yes. Which, yeah. which went viral, quote unquote, whatever that means. Like not like millions of clicks, but, you know, a lot of clicks for me. And so I make this argument that religion has become part and parcel of people who have done everything right, quote unquote. And what I mean by that is college education, middle class income, married with children. If you check those four boxes, it's also called the golden path. That's what a lot of conservative like economists mm. call that the golden path. If you me- if you meet those criteria, your chances of having good income, you know, good outcomes is much higher. You're much more likely to go to church. This is what people don't understand is like the more education you have, the more likely you are to go to church. The more the 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 ideal combination of of income and education are college degree, four year college degree, making between sixty and a hundred thousand dollars a year. So for me, what we're seeing to me is the haves and the have-nots are growing larger and larger every year. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think this is a serious problem, both pastorally, but also from a social science perspective, because the nothing in particular are the fastest growing religious group in America today. They were 14% of America in 2008. They're 23% of America today. Amongst 18 to 22-year-olds, one-third of them identify as nothing in particular. That's the plurality, by the way. The most likely choice amongst college students today is nothing in particular on surveys. Now, Mm. here's what's shocking about them. Atheists, half of atheists have four-year college degrees. It's only 25% of nothing in particulars. So like they're not – when we talk about like the nuns, we need to spend a lot more time talking about the nothing in particular because educationally they're falling behind. Income-wise, they're falling behind. They don't trust other people. They don't engage in the political process. They're basically checking out of every aspect of American society while churches are now filled with everyone who did everything right, good income, good education, kids, married, all those things that the nothing in particular are not doing. So I think we're seeing this terrible bifurcation, right, in American society of the haves and the have-nots. And for a lot of nothing in particular, it's going to be harder and harder for them to move into the middle class or upper middle class because they don't have those social connections that church provides. And I think that is, that's how I'm thinking about this more and more is they're feeling left out, left behind, lost, cut off. 
And that is really bad pastorally, spiritually, but also economically and democratically, little d democratically, for American society. Yeah, I remember that article when I came across it on your feed. And I linked to it in my uh, weekly newsletter on Friday called On the Rise. And like lots of people went crazy over that article. And first of all, great title. Religion is a luxury good. Like, great. Got me. Uh, but, you know, there was a lot of substance behind it. And, and I think so many myths got broken down, like this whole idea, don't send Junior off to college, they're going to deconvert, they're going to, you know, believe in evolution, etc. That whole line that we've been fed for decades now, apparently is not true, or not wow. universally true. Yeah, no. so, yeah, explain that. Even let's start there, because I want to dissect, you just shared a lot of information, I want to dissect it. So this whole idea that the uneducated the not very wealthy, the non-successful people bail on church and that Ivy League probably all became democratic, progressives, you know, not true, not true, not true, not true. So let's start at that point. Yeah. So I think what the, the real, like, this all sets in the foundation of a concept, trust, a really simple concept, but like so incredibly important for a functioning society is just the idea, can I trust another human being? Like, that's how democracy works. It's the glue that holds us together. Yep. You know, if I can't trust another person, then I'm on alert all the time. I don't want to share. I don't want to pay taxes. I don't want to engage in the process. So it's not just interpersonal trust, though. It's also institutional trust, which is like, do I trust banks? Do I trust media? Do I trust politicians? Do I trust the church? And what we're seeing more and more is that trust is very strongly related to education. So the more education someone has, the more trusting they are of other people individually called interpersonal trust, but also more trusting of institutions. Because you got to think about institutions have served them well. They got mm. a college degree, which allowed them to get a job at the big Fortune 500 company, which allows them to have a good income and feed their kids and have health insurance. So if you don't think this institution works, you're not going to get involved in that institution either. Everyone's out to get me. Everyone's, you know, looking for their own advantage in life. And I think people with educate, now it's hard to figure out causally what's going on here. Does getting educated make you more trusting or is being more trusting more likely for you to get yeah. more educated, right? Mm -hmm. That's the causal difficulty of the whole thing. But the end result is the same which is that you've got a lot of high income, high education, trustful people. And then you got a growing number of people who don't are, are just checking out from everything because, oh, the pastor's just trying to get more money to buy a jet. And the media is trying to feed me a narrative and politicians are just trying to fatten their pockets, right? Everything is cynical. And I think that, that is the overarching meta narrative of the time that we live in is this cynicism and pessimism and distrustfulness of every institution. And I think it's not just tearing the church apart. It's tearing every institution that we have in American society apart. And the problem is it's not – we don't have a direct line for how to rebuild trust in American institutions. Yeah, and you know, I'm probably part of the system, according to a lot of people, three university degrees, you know, the whole deal, generally a very trusting person. It's really interesting to think about, um, you know, is it causal or is it correlative? It's a great question. I don't know. Obviously, you know, my experience is, is, is that. But your argument, which was so intriguing, is the people who tend to still be around in the church 
as 2024 opens are the people who aren't cynical of everything, who are better educated, who have higher incomes. Therefore, religion is a luxury good. And I think there's still a popular idea that, you know, the people who are a little more populist, a little more distrusting, they've prepared for the apocalypse with their storage of, you know, uh, water and uh, all the tablets they need and ammunition, etc. You're saying those people are deconverting faster. They're, they're, yes. Than any checking out from every aspect of American society. And, and that is like, for instance, uh, we asked questions on surveys, have you put up a political yard sign during this election cycle? Which I think is a great question, by the way, because it's like, that is a really it's interesting question. It's like the most question. basic political yeah. thing you can do. It costs you no, they'll give you one for free. You literally, you know, just yeah. stick it in your yard. Nothing in particular, uh-huh. almost none of them put a political yard sign in their yard. Atheists, this is fascinating. Atheists, half of atheists gave to a candidate or campaign in 2020. Half. You know what it was amongst white evangelicals? 26%. 26%. Atheists are incredibly politically engaged. This is why I don't worry about them from like a social science perspective, FYI, because they're they're engaging. They have good income. They have good education. They're engaging in politics, and they're trying to change society in their own vision of what they think is right. That is all good things from a social science perspective and political science perspective. That's exactly what we want in a functioning democracy. Nothing in particular are saying, you don't work for me. You don't represent me. You can't even see me. Goodbye. Like, I am done with Mm. everything that you're involved with. And that kind of disaffection and dissatisfaction and hopelessness is really caustic in a functioning society. And one thing we know about, especially about economic mobility, right, which is just the idea that can you move up in class from the lower class to the middle class, the middle class to the upper class, the Mm -hmm. number one predictor of economic mobility is being in social networks with people who have a higher economic mobility than you do. They basically build the ladders for you to pull yourself up to the next rung of the economic spectrum. And one of the last generators of economic mobility, we know this, there's a study published last year that looked at like 42 million Facebook accounts. The number one place where you find economic mobility is not school because that's based on neighborhood, Mm. which is, you know, how that goes. And neighborhoods are based on economics. And even your workplace is based on economics because blue-collar people work with blue-collar people. White-collar people work Mm -hmm. with white-collar people. The only place where you find true economic mobility and diversity is houses of worship. That's the only place. So by not going to church, you are the rungs that would get you to the next level of economic mobility. There are no rungs there because you are not allowing yourself to be in places to get you to the next level. And that's all that's terrible. You know, it's just terrible because they're in their own. And I don't want to blame anyone for their own poverty. Like, don't hear me wrong. But Mm -hmm. like at some level, you got to find a way out. And church used to be a great way out for a lot of people who needed help. And now those people have no way to reach out for help because they're not part of anything anymore. Well, we become so stratified, right? Like we're just in our own little cocoon, our own echo chamber online, et cetera. Ryan, there's so many directions I could go. Let me, uh, let me start here. I'm hearing more and more secular voices, particularly in the last 18 months to two years, Talk about, hey, I'm not, this is what it sounds like. I'm not religious. I don't believe in religion. I have no, nothing in particular, 
but my goodness, are we missing the church? Like there is something that we have to reinvent as a culture because we can't do community. We can't do relationship. We can't do social compassionate justice where we care for those who are less fortunate. And there is no other place, you know, and when I think about diversity for a church, I've always said, yes, racial diversity, very important, but nobody thinks about economic diversity. Like a lot of these suburban churches, right? You got to have a car to get there. Well, does your church, and I think the ideal church has people on social assistance and millionaires, and you don't really know who's who, but you're sitting next to each other and you're in the same community group and you're in the same serving team on that church. And you're right. Like where else does that exist? And social clubs are dying. I mean, you look at, you look at the social clubs of uh, 50 years ago, they're not around anymore. They're not, they're not like that. So, um, yeah, talk a little bit more about the, you know, people talk about the collapse of Western civilization or the U.S. empire, et cetera. But I think part of that, what you're, you're driving at, because I'm, I'm thinking, you know, it's sort of that meme, like, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? Oh, I think about the decline of the Roman Empire quite a bit, uh, strangely. But, you know, one of the marks of civilization is just that. It's civility. Yeah. It is the idea that I'm going to treat people who are different than me with kindness and care I had, I had a, it could be generational, maybe I'm just out of the loop on this, but I had two experiences in the last two weeks where I went up to order something at a fast food restaurant. And normally there's a protocol, right? The protocol is I walk up, you go, hi, how can I help you? Or, hey, how you doing today? Or, yeah, what can I get you? I just looked up, the, 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 they were younger, like teenagers, late teens, maybe 20. Just looked down at the screen and waited and then like looked up at me and I'm like, oh, am I supposed to go? <laughs> is it my turn? Oh, wait, it's my turn. And, yeah. Is it my turn? Yeah. And then like, not even a word. And I'm like, yeah, hi, how are you? And it's like, mm. I'm like, what? what is going on? I don't know. Talk about the collapse of, of the civil and civilization, because I think you're right. That distrust, mistrust, that's a big issue. Let me tell you a story. I'm a pastor at heart, yeah. so I'm a storyteller at heart. Um <laughs> I, when I went to Greenville College, which is a, a free Methodist school, liturgical, I learned, I grew up like low church, evangelical Southern Baptist. So I had to like learn about liturgy, right? Um, I went to St. Paul's Free Methodist Church in Greenville for church one Sunday morning. And they had this thing called prayers of the people, which I think is great. I think more churches should do it. We used to do it back in the day when we were Yeah, school. like yeah. it's such a cool, like, so what happened, for those of you who don't know, don't grow up in this tradition, the pastor basically starts with like a little short prayer about like pray for the country and pray for the denomination or the community or whatever. And then he opens it up to the congregation. And and then most people say like a one or two sentence prayer, like, please pray for my Aunt Kathy. She's got cancer. And mm-hmm. then the pastor will say, Lord, in your mercy. And we all say, hear our prayer, right? It's a really nice like affirmation of the community and all kinds of cool stuff. Well, I was at church one Sunday and this guy walks in who's younger than me and I was in college. So this guy had to be like 18 years old. And his girlfriend or wife was with him, and she had a baby on her hip. We were doing prayers to the people. And, you know, typical stuff, pray for Aunt Kathy, pray for me on traveling, you know, all the kind of stuff. And right before I was going to close up, the guy in the back says, could you all pray for me? I lost my job, and I don't know if I can afford the rent this month. Pastor says, Lord, in your mercy. Congregation says, hear our prayer. Then we go on to the next part of the service because that's how you do it in liturgical church. After church was over, one of the older gentlemen in the front went straight back to that guy in the back and said, son, I own the lumber yard in town. If you want a job, you can come work for me tomorrow. And I thought that is what has been lost in American society 
over the last 20 or 30 <laughs> years. Because if you speak a need into a group of people who have been trained, equipped to help other people, they are going to move heaven and earth to help you. And we don't have spaces like that anymore in American society where someone can speak a need into a group of people who are equipped and ready to help. And that is really the, the encapsulation of the problem that we're having now with income inequality, with political uh, you know, division that we have, the polarization that we're dealing with is we forgot the fact that other people are human beings that want to help us. They're not out to hurt us. And that young man, God bless his courage, right, to say that into a community of people. And then God bless that yeah. other man to step back and say, I'm, I don't know you, but I want to help you because this is what I've been you know, trained to do over the course of my life. That is what we're missing. And that is why society is struggling. Like, I don't lay in bed thinking about the decline of the Roman Empire. I think about the decline of American society. Mm. And I think that, to me, that's much a much more pressing issue for us right now. And for, specifically in my place, I think about the role that religion used to play in American society and does not anymore and what we're missing because it's not there. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I could I could rant on, but I think I need to ask another question. <laughs> what else are you learning? Because this is very, very close to my heart right now, and you're 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 preaching to a converted audience. Um, I would love to know more about the nothing in particulars and the nuns. What else do you think is relevant when we look at trends? Because all of this is very, okay. Here's here's an immediate question, then the bigger question I just asked. Immediate question: um, Rise of the nuns. Give us a time scale. Like, this feels like the curve is going like this. Yeah. So, bad news and good news here. Uh, between uh, 1972 is the first good data we have. 5% of Americans were nuns in that very first general social survey in 1972. 5%. Um, this sociologist called them the, the neglected category, which I think is hilarious because it's like, they, they were, but because they were like a rounding error. There were 82 of them in that first general social survey. 82 of them. Holy cow, Right. Um, here's what's fascinating. Between 1972 and 1991, it went from 5% to 7%. So, like, really nothing substantial. You wouldn't feel that, like, from a societal standpoint. But then, from 1991 forward, it was like, boom, like a hockey stick, just straight up into the right. And every year from that year, from that point forward, it was like 1% every year or two, 1% every year or two, 1% every year or two. And now the best estimates are that 30% of American adults are nuns. Like I said, Gen Z, it's over 40%. Here's the good news though. I've seen several surveys recently that say that among the youngest adult Americans, so like 18 to 22 year old Americans, they're just as likely to be nuns as 25 year old Americans which means that the nuns are not continuing to rise above probably 43 to 45%. So the hockey stick went up very dramatically, and then it sort of has leveled off, if not plateaued, over the last couple years. So I think there's a hard ceiling, at least right now in the data, where the nuns are not getting there. I don't think they're going to get above 50% in the next 20 or 30 years. Well, that is good news. What happened in 1991? If that was the inflection point, or do we know? Is it just like I don't know something in the water? Uh, so I can give you a couple, a uh, couple guesses, um, somewhat yeah. educated guesses. One is one that people don't think about a lot, which is the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War. You know, like the Cold War was really a religious; it had like a ton of religious connotation to it because we only think about the politics now. We don't think about the fact, like, to be a communist was to be an atheist, and was to be an atheist was to be a communist in America. In God We Trust was put on the money, and under God was put on the pledge in the nineteen fifties. 
as a way to inoculate ourselves, right, against the Red Scare and all that stuff. So communism goes away, and now you can be an atheist and not be a communist. Mm, I've never heard that, and that is really interesting. Okay, that's a theory. Right, where it's like, okay, now, and it's like, you know, it's like everything is, if I know someone who's an atheist, I'm more likely to say I'm an atheist if I really am an atheist, okay? So, and the internet plays into that too. Now, I cannot prove this empirically because everyone got the internet in like a five-year window of time, so there's no control group, mm-hmm. which is not great, but whatever. Um, so, imagine you're an atheist born in Mississippi in 1950. Like, you are not telling a soul that you're an atheist in Mississippi in 1972. Absolutely not. Because you're going to get ostracized from your family. You might even go to church and quietly dissent. Oh, you're probably going mm-hmm. to church and quietly going, this is stupid, the entire time. So, yeah. But imagine now you're an atheist born in 1995 in Mississippi. And now you've got Reddit and Facebook and social and everything. Now you got the, the Atheist of Mississippi Facebook group. And now you're not alone. So now you're more willing to say what you are because you know other people that are like you out there. So I think we cannot discount the the internet. The other thing I want to point out, which is always a touchy subject, is politics, okay? Um, if you look back at, like, politics in the 80s, even in the 80s, it was relatively genteel. Um, you know, Tip O'Neill was the Speaker of the House. He was a Democrat. Reagan was president. He was Republican. They would golf on the weekends. Like, they did not hate each other. They disagreed on policy. They did not hate each other. And then what happens in the early 1990s is Newt Gingrich comes on the scene. And his whole thing was not only are the Democrats uh, wrong, they're evil. And then the the Democrats reciprocated. It's like if you want to go low, we'll go lower. And so you see this growing, we call it the God gap or the Pew gap, where republicanism has been tied up more and more with being a Christian or a religious person. And the Democrats have more and more become the party of non-religious people. And I think that began in the early 1990s. And it like it's sort of like the ball rolled down two different hills at that point. And now it's just rolling away from each other more and more. And so I'll give you a stat. Today, 2020, when Biden got elected, 45% of his voters were atheist agnostics or nothing in particulars. So almost half the Democratic coalition today is nuns. Almost half. Amongst Republicans, it's 12%, right? So, so like the parties could not be – 75% of Republicans today are white Christians. It's 38% of Democrats. So the parties cannot mm. be any different than they are right now. They're only going to be more different in the future as these kind of two lines continue to move away from each other in terms of politics and religion. I think it was in your book. I mean, I read pretty widely, and if it's not, you would be familiar with the stats anyway. But I think I remember the graph that talked about the movement of religious affiliation and party affiliation. And I think it was like, I don't have the exact numbers, but I think it was pretty much a crapshoot in the 1960s if you were a Christian. You know, you had Christian Republicans and Christian Democrats. It was six of one, half dozen of the other. Maybe not perfectly equally divided, but there would be, oh yeah, okay, well, he's a Democrat, I'm a Republican, whatever. Uh, It was, was it more widely distributed, like the American population 50, 60 years ago? In the late 1980s, if you went to an evangelical church, you were just as likely to sit next to a Democrat as you were a Republican. As late late as 1989. Wow. Uh, Same thing was true in the Catholic church. Same thing was true in the mainline church too. Like that's when American religion was actually the most diverse, matter heterogeneous, to use a, a social science term, 
And now yeah, yeah. what's essentially happened is there's no, there's really no place for white Protestant liberals in most parts of America. Like the main line, which are like the Episcopals, the United Methodist Church, the United Church of Christ, the ABC. In the 1950s, half of Americans were mainline Protestant, half. Today, it's 10%. 10% today are mainline wow. Protestants. Well, evangelicals were, were 17% in 1972, and they're 22% today. They're actually more evangelicals in America today than there were in, 19, in the 1970s. While the mainline has basically collapsed, on an average Sunday in America, mm -hmm. there are 375,000 Episcopalians in worship across the country. 375,000. There are 13.2 million Southern Baptists, and about half of them report going to church. So 6 million. Mm. 375,000 versus 6 million. There is no real left of center white Protestant tradition in America anymore. When it used to be, there were there was left, right, and center in 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 the buffet of American mm -hmm. Protestantism, mm -hmm. and now it's really just one thing over and over again for most parts of America. Wow. Um, was America ever truly a Christian nation? This is much debated, right? The founding fathers were deists, but not Christians, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what's Why your take on that? Why are you trying to get me in trouble, data? Like, that's what I want to know. <laughs> okay, I'll give you there data you on this, so don't yell at me, yell at the data. I actually am working on a textbook right now for Oxford, and it's called The American Religious Landscape, Facts, Trends, and the Future. And I just wrote the chapter on the history of American religion going back to 1776 with the best data that we have available the share of Americans who were part of a religious tradition at the revolution was 17%. 17%, okay? The, the interesting compare. this comes from a book called The Churching of America by Finke and Stark, which is an amazing piece of work, came out in 2005. They worked so hard to try to grab as much data as they could from all points of American history. They make this comparison. There were more women gave birth less than nine months after they got married then went to church every Sunday. So we've never been like this shining city on a hill of like virtuous values. From we were a bunch of scoundrels and scallywags and weirdos and and, and and immoral people from the very beginning. It's just we recreated our past in like this idyllic leave it to beaver way where it makes us look better than we actually were. We were never as religious as we thought we were. And you know, so the way we understand it is it was really low during the revolution. It rose pretty rapidly through the 1800s and really religiosity in America hit its peak in the 1950s. Now that's cultural religiosity though, not like what an evangelical would call religiosity. For instance, like Eisenhower was asked about this. He goes, I want you to be religious. I just don't care what kind, you know, like evangelicals be like, no, no, no. Like you got to be with us. Like that's not the kind of religion that existed in America in the 1950s. It was just like, be religious. We don't care what God you worship or what church you go to. Just go to church. Now it's like, no, you're only religious if you go to the kind of church that I think is preaching the proper gospel. So the conceptions mm -hmm. are totally different now of religiosity compared to 50 years ago or even 200 years ago. We, we, we can't use our perception today to look back in American history and make a direct comparison about how religious we were. Ryan, that is such a good observation for almost everything. We always look back from the current view and view history through some lens we think should have applied. So this may be speculation and it might be unanswerable, but if 17% at the time of the revolution were broadly considered Christians or church-going people, 
What percentage do you think would be nuns or atheists or agnostics, or is there no way of telling? It was probably not they were atheist agnostic. They just didn't want to—they were, they were the nothing in particular category, right? They, nothing yeah, in they'd particular. Yeah, they just be like, meh, okay. you know, like religion's a thing. I know it exists. I don't really like it either way. And at that, at that point, by the way, the, the, the largest churches were the congregational churches and the Episcopal churches. Mm-hmm. So it was like high church was very strong in those days which was founded and funded by like really rich people who, you know, it wasn't like Baptist religion. Baptists were actually really small in the, mm-hmm. at the revolution. They grew rapidly during the early 1800s. So the kind of church that people rebelled against, and also here's the other part of the, the whole thing. Most colonies had a state church that was funded through taxpayer dollars. So I don't yeah. think I knew that. The congregational wow. church, and actually in the in the book that Finke and Stark make this point that the reason the main line has declined so rapidly is because it had a funding stream like it, it had a guarantee. And so what they say is, you know what makes a church grow fast? Give a guy a hundred bucks a horse and say, go out west and start a church. Don't come back. There's no more money for you here. Mm. So you got to learn how to preach well, serve well, give well, be well. If you have a, a guaranteed funding stream, you're not going to preach that well. You're not going to try that hard because you got all this money coming in. And so what, you know, what Thinking Stark say is like, if you look, they have a great visual in the book. It's um, Evanston, Illinois, the first United Methodist Church, Free Meth- or United Methodist Church. They had pews listed and how much it was to sit in that pew for the entire year. It's called a pew tax. And so, by the way, the Mm -hmm. most expensive pews were in the middle, halfway back, like kind of middle, middle. The front row. Oh, so you got the best. Exactly. The front row was actually cheaper and the back row was the cheapest, but the middle was the most expensive. So that's how they funded themselves, not through offerings, but through pew taxes. But Baptists didn't do it that way, right? Baptists are like, well, start a church, pass the plate. If we don't have enough money, we're closing down. So that's what they make this argument that like a church that has a guaranteed funding stream is not going to grow very fast. It's almost like a startup. You know, you seed them with money and you let them go and give them a little bit of runway. Then they got to build the rest of the runway so they can take off. But don't build too much of the runway for them. That's the kind of religion that grew fast in America fascinating. That's such an American, you know, I remember uh, the first time I taught in Germany, I'm going back this year, uh, but I was meeting with a pastor and he had questions for me. He said, I said, well, how many people come out to your church on Sunday? He said, we have three. And I'm like, no, that's impossible. Exactly. That was my reaction. I'm like, that's impossible. And then I realized he was state funded because there is no economic model that that works under in any non-funded thing he was state funded his 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 you know the state tax took care of his salary his stipend so he could live with three people in his pews or nobody in his pews and i'm just like wow that is such a foreign mindset but for our european listeners we'll throw that one in okay man ryan i feel like this could be a seven hour exploration. Yeah, Joe Rogan me do like a three hour conversation yeah, where I pass out. Do a three end. and a half hour. It. Well, I think we'll do a round two on, on this one. This is, this is great. Uh, so we're talking about church trends for 2024. What else do we need to know about the nuns, which is atheists, agnostics, and nothing in particular? So a couple things. One is that they're not just Democrats anymore. Like you, you don't mm-hmm. get to 30% of the population by being one thing, right? It's not, Right. It's not just a bunch of like young hippie liberal kids, white kids who are like joining the the nuns club. It's it's or educated scientists. Exactly. No. Like it's not what you in your yeah. head. I need people to stop thinking about the nuns like the the Nietzsche quoting philosophy professor with the elbow patches. Like 
<laughs> that, that that ain't it. It's it's everybody yeah. and anybody now, and it, it's affecting every part of American society. So rich, poor, young, old, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, you know, every every group is being affected by this. And I think, but here's how I want you to think about this, okay? There, we, we think about religion in three ways. Behavior, belief, and belonging. Three Bs of religion. Behavior, belief, belonging. Behavior is the first thing that goes. That's going to a house of worship. That's usually how we measure behavior. So about 52, 53% of Americans go to church less than once a year now, okay? So that's a big hunk. A lot of people are a nun on that metric alone. Belonging is second. That is what is your present religion of any, okay? Like we talked about, a third of Americans say now say they're nuns by belonging, but here's a little bit of hope. On belief measures, only 15% of Americans say that God doesn't exist or that we can't know if God exists or not. So, you know, 52% never attending, 30% nuns, only 15% are atheist agnostic by belief. So that's the usual way it goes. Behavior goes first, belonging goes second, belief goes third. Even amongst people who never attend religious services, they are just as likely to say that God doesn't exist as they are to say that God exists and I have no doubt about it. We are still a very believing when I talk about the nuns, I'm almost talking about a, I'm almost talking about belonging measure, but by other mm-hmm. measures, like things look a lot different. And and most nuns, not most nuns, one third of nothing in particulars say religion is somewhat or very important in their lives. One third of nothing in particulars. And really where the rubber meets the road for a lot of Christians, they need to hear this part specifically is I have panel data, which asks the same people the same questions from 2011 to 2020. So you can track individual level movement in American society. Amongst people who were atheists in 2011, less than 1% of them became Christians by 2020. Less than 1%, okay? Amongst agnostics, it was 3% went from agnostic to Christian nine years later. Amongst nothing in particulars, 16% of them became Christians nine years later. So from a marketing standpoint, think about this. 1% of 6% of the population, that's what atheists are, 6% of the population. 1% of 6% of the population is 0.06% of the population, okay? 3% of 6% of the population is 0.18% of the population. 16% of 23% of the population is over 3% of the population went from being a nothing in particular to a Christian. Which is more, mm. 3% or 0.06%? That's that's a lot more, guys. It's like 500 times more people go from nothing in particular to Christian compared to atheist to Christian. So here's the upshot of that. Stop debating atheists. It's stupid. It's a waste of your time. It is not a good ROI. And like Philip Yancey said one time, he goes, no one ever became a Christian because they lost the argument. That is not the way that we do things. Why don't you focus on the nothing in particulars because A, there's a lot of them, and B, they don't hate you. Bring them back. Focus on them. You're going to have a much better ROI if you focus on that, on that you know, two, 23% of Americans were nothing in particular. See, this is where I think America is starting to sync up with Canada. So most of the listeners to this podcast are American. I, ha- I spent a lot of time in the U.S., but I'm a Canadian. And I grew up in a post-Christian culture. And consistently, 13 to f- like single digits go to church on a Sunday, 5%, 10%. It's super small. 
Uh, but only 13% of Canadians consider themselves atheist or maybe a few more would be agnostic, but it's a tiny atheist pool. And my, my experience here has been most people are spiritual. So you talk to an unchurched person in a grocery store or a gas station, you're like, hey, you know, what do you, you know, not that you strike up those conversations, but if you did, you ask them, what are your views, you know, theologically or spiritually? They'd be like, oh yeah, I'm a spiritual person. A lot would tell you, yeah, I'm a Christian. I think they're, I believe in God. They don't know what that means, but they, that, that doesn't like in the Barna definition, they don't have an active personal faith, but they're open. And that's, I think what you're saying in America is that to look out at all the people, even the cynical, distrustful, anti-institutional, anti-governmental people might still have some kind of a spiritual identity that they would say, oh yeah, I believe there's a higher power. I think there's something out there beyond us. Is that what you're saying? That's, most people do not hate religion, okay? Mm. Like even amongst even amongst the nuns, yeah. I'm actually work. I got a, a Templeton grant $350,000 grant to do the largest ever survey of non-religious Americans to basically figure out what their orientation towards religion is. You know, like, I, I think what, what we see in the culture is there's evangelical atheists, right, who are like, okay. I'm an atheist and you got to be an atheist too. I think there's a lot of libertarian right. atheists too who are like, I'm an atheist, but you can do whatever the heck you want over there. That's your life. You know, do your thing. But there's a lot of people who are spiritual, right, who are seeking, who are interested in religion, but just have problems with the institution. of. Like we talked about institutional trust is at all-time lows, right? They're, they're, they don't like the institution of religion. I think the, the median nun is in that camp. They like Jesus. They probably express some level of theolo theological understanding of Jesus and the resurrection and the Bible and things like that, but they cannot do the social part of it, right? They cannot do the institutional part of it. They're not anti— they don't think— the problem is social media amplifies extreme voices on both sides. You know, like ex-evangelicals, for instance. You know what percentage of Americans are ex-evangelical? It's probably like 3%. <laughs> no. Like, that's the best yeah, estimate we but they have. get all the traffic. They get all the traffic. Everyone wants to talk about them. I'm like, that's, like, listen, everyone deserves their own voice, but not everyone deserves their own megaphone. And I think social media has given everyone a megaphone that they don't really deserve sometimes. And, like, that's an interesting conversation, but let's not say, like, oh, the death of the evangelical church because of ex-evangelicals bringing it down. That's not what's happening here. Most people, when you ask them about the religion, they're like, meh, it's fine. I don't go, but it's okay if you go. That's the median nun. And I think we need to think a lot more about that. That moderates don't march, Carrie. They don't hold signs. <laughs> you know what I mean? They just kind of go meh about everything. Yeah. That is the person you have to convince, not the stark raving atheist you see on social media. It's just the person who doesn't care either way about religion. Yeah, and this is what you wrote about with Jim Davis in the Great Dechurching. Is there something like forty million Americans who are? Uh, actually sometimes more orthodox than the people who go to church, which is really peculiar. I mean, as far as, you know, checking the theological boxes off, they're just religiously unaffiliated. Can you remind us, like, I know Jim talked about this on his episode, but was it the number one reason for people disaffiliating from church? Was it that they moved? Is that what it was? Yeah. Really? It's so boring. I moved. I moved. I moved and I didn't find another. So I moved, I went to college. I didn't deconvert. I just couldn't find a church. I'm having so many conversations with people who are like, yeah, we moved and we just, in our city, we just can't find a church. That's it. That, that's, but that's the thing. It's not, that's not a sexy headline, Gary. Like that's not gonna no, make the New York Times. No. Like the big yeah. story of like, I'm gay 
or like I voted for Hillary Clinton. Like then I left right. church. Like those are salacious stories that get clicks and likes and retweets and views. You know, the boring story is, uh, I moved and I just got too lazy to find a new church. So I stopped going. I would go back if I found the right church, but I can't. And you know, what's funny about those groups, by the way, yeah. the number one reason why they would go back to church, like the constant theme you see over and over again is friends, 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 friends is literally mm. like the key to the whole thing. Would you, I would go back if my friends went there or I would go back to meet new friends. It's about, Pastors, I love you. Okay, I'm I'm one of you, kind of. I'm bivocational. I have very little theological training. Not everything is a vertical problem, guys. Not everything is a <laughs> spiritual problem. If you you know you can pray for things all you want, but don't forget the fact that church is both a vertical institution, but also a horizontal institution at the same time. It's people hanging out with people. People come. I know you want to think they come because you're a great preacher and wants to hear you preach. I'm sure that's not true. They come because they want to be <laughs> with their friends. They want to be with people that are like them. And I think we got to think more about the horizontal that the church provides might actually be more salvific in some ways, not like in the spiritual sense, but you know what I mean, in the in the emotional sense, the relational sense, than the, 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 the vertical is. Focus a little bit more. Not everything is a vertical problem, guys. There are some horizontal problems your church has. Focus on those for a while. Oh, man, preach. Okay, we're coming full circle here because we talked about the distrust, the breakdown of social institutions, not just the church, but clubs, et cetera, et cetera. I was speaking at a conference about six months ago, very small event. Everybody owned an agency or a SaaS company, and I was one of the speakers, one of the participants. And during the Q&A after my talk, a very young leader said to me, I really, I grew up in church. I really believe in the value of community. I can no longer convince my friends to be part of a community because they don't know what community is. They've never had it modeled. They grew up out of church. They don't know what it is. Everyone eats dinner in front of their devices. They don't talk to each other. They go to their rooms. We live separate lives. Um, you know, I'm with you on the worry about civilization collapsing. Do you have any stats on community and the state of the younger generations that are shareable at this point? Because I think I think what she said, what she told me, is like, oh crap! I had that was a new category for me because I'm like, well, we can call them back. It's like, no, there's nothing to call them back to because they never experienced it. See, that's that's something that I very much worry about. There's a lot of data about the oddness of Generation Z. Okay, so what do I mean by oddness? Okay, um, the share who felt lonely or isolated amongst Gen Z, 61%. During the, the question was asked, during your teen years, did you do the following things or feel the following things? Okay, Gen Z, 61% said they felt isolated or lonely often. Amongst the baby boomers thinking back on their teenage years, only 36% said they felt lonely or isolated often, okay? 78% of boomers said they had a boyfriend or girlfriend when they were teenagers. It's only 56% of Gen Z. Yeah, sex is dying with them too and intimacy and relationships. It is. 82% of boomers had a part-time job. It's only 58% of Generation Z. Did you know that only 25% of 16-year-olds have a driver's license right now? Yeah, what is going? That's come up a few times lately. By the way, just let me qualify. I'm not saying your teenager should be having sex. Please no. don't message me. I'm just saying it's something to say they're even losing interest in love. What's going on 
with driver's licenses. Yeah. I mean, I have two boys. They're in their 30s and late 20s now. 16th birthday, it's like, let's go, dad. And increasingly fewer and fewer people. It's 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 the idea we need to bubble them as much as we possibly can and 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 don't give them too many responsibilities and kind of, you know, I think they're they're scared because we've scared them into doing things. You know what I mean? Like the world's a scary, to go back to trust, right? To go full circle back to trust oh, is back to the trust. world is a scary place. Do you know how many Amber Alerts there are in this country a year? Mm-hmm. It's a staggeringly small number, Gary. Like the, the number of honest to God kidnappings in this country is incredible. Like, you know, white van kidnappings, not like a, mm-hmm. a, a, mm-hmm. a, a, a parent took the kid, right? Not but that like kind. random, random, yes. like true. It's less than a hundred a year. And the entire country of now, listen, everyone's a tragedy. Don't get me wrong here. I'm not trying to minimize yeah. any of that stuff, but statistically you're, you should be more worried about your kid walking across the road than being kidnapped. Like that's way more, right? Riding in a car is way more dangerous than getting kidnapped. We're, we're afraid of everything and we have no concept of community. Cause here's the thing. If you don't have community, you don't know other people are good people. You assume the worst about those people. Because all you see are the headlines. All you see is the viral stuff. Oh, yeah. You know, it was interesting. I was talking to a group of leaders the other day, and we were talking about just that, anxiety and Gen Z. And I'm like, so according to a couple of studies I've read, crime peaked in the 1990s. Like crime is much better. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. I was very much alive in the 1990s. I... Um, I feel way less safe today than I did in the 1990s. Like maybe I was almost murdered five times. I don't remember. But like, I just, I don't, I was very comfortable in the 1990s and maybe I was in greater danger, but because the perception of danger is higher today, even though the reality of it is lower, like there's something, and I think you're back to the power of community, you know, back to, Hey, I don't know that everyone's trustworthy, but I'm gathering with a hundred people on a regular basis who are different than me. Some are rich, some are poor, some different skin color than me, different accent than me. And you know what? They're mostly good people. A little bit weird, but really decent people. And life is good. And maybe those of us who are older, we grew up with that. And gosh, this is this is like a clarion call. This is like, uh, like we got to do something about this, right? So what do we do about it? Well, I think the churches need to think, and, I, and this is what I implore churches to think is, can you set aside 5% of your budget for nothing but social activity? Like wow. you've got a fellowship hall. You've probably got a nice yard. Most churches do have a nice yard. They got a nice facility, right? You've got classrooms. You've got, and listen, do a barbecue and do it on a Saturday. And, and it starts whenever it starts and ends whenever it ends. You know, like, let it go as long as it needs to go. Do not have an evangelistic sermon in the middle. Don't hand everyone a contact card. Don't do a praise and worship concert. Let people sit. Now, have games and stuff for the kids to do and activities, you know, for everyone to engage in. But if people want to sit and talk with each other, just give them space to do that. I think they're dead. The one thing I hate is, like, when church ends, there's always some dude who's, like, turning the lights off. Like oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We're stacking the chairs. We're yeah. stacking the chairs. We gotta go. Everyone we gotta get here. out of here. Like, no, yeah. you don't have to get out of there. One person's job, their ministry should be, I will stay as long as people want to talk. You know what I mean? If they want to sit in the pew for 20 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour after church and just have a conversation with someone else in the pew, I will leave the lights on and hang out somewhere else in the building until they're ready to leave. That is what church should be, is a place where people, so have carnival, backpack giveaway, uh, potluck, 
you know, give purely social with no evangelistic message behind it. Just let people have space. We call them third spaces, right? So first space is home. Second space is work. Third, what's your third space? Most people don't have a third space. And actually a lot of people, one and two are the same space now because they work from home. Give them another space to go hang out with people and be social. Your church was designed that way, like structurally, architecturally, to have people gather. Allow them to gather and talk to each other and watch miracles happen as people make connections and build friend networks. And then new people come because there are friends there. And that's how you grow. Again, you might be a great preacher, but the most important way for your church to grow is horizontally, not vertically. So get people on your grounds for bad reasons, social reasons. You know what? You've solved a debate that we've been having in the Art of Leadership Academy. So members, hey, this is because everyone's struggling with, we did this carnival and nobody came on Sunday. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe you got to. And I'm like, you know, you just gave a redemptive purpose to it. What a great idea. What yeah. a great idea. So, you know, the stat, and it could be completely apocryphal and it may not be top of mind for you, but it's often quoted. But something like 81% of people would come to church if a friend invited them. Is there truth to that? Do you know any stats in that area? It gets paraded around so often. I think it resonates. Like, I think it is true and based on the data you've shared. But do you have any data as to the likelihood of accepting an appropriate invitation to church? Here's what I know. The number one reason why people vote is because someone asked them to. Okay. The number one people reason why people register to vote is because someone asked them to. Like, there's so much tangible data out there that says that people just need a personal invitation from you to go do something else, and they're more likely to do that. I'll give you a good example. I'm going to watch a musical on Saturday. It's the Tina Turner musical. It's the Fox Theater in St. Louis. Only reason I'm going is because my friends who we really like and I really have a good time with ask us to go. I would never go on my own. I'm a very suggestible human being, just like everyone else is on planet Earth, and we want to go do stuff. So ask people to go do stuff, right? You want to go to the movies with me? You want to have dinner with me? Like, I think that's the problem is sometimes we're afraid to do things like that, like ask people to do stuff together because they might say no. Keep asking, right? Keep asking. And the problem is, if I walk into a church, I don't know anybody, and I walk into a church and no one looks like me, I'm leaving. If I walk into a church with someone who invited me, at least I know one person there who's like me, I'm staying because they're going to make me stay. I think you got to have that personal connection with anything, whatever organization it is, church or otherwise, personal connection. You know this, marketing. The best kind of marketing is face-to-face -face personal marketing, not like bombing mm -hmm. people with ads on social media. Yes, I don't know the number. I'm telling you, people inviting people is way cooler than you preaching a great sermon. <laughs> great. Uh, spoken by two preachers in this interview. So um, what... You know, you've traced out a lot of hope, which is super encouraging because you can look at the trends, you can look at the data and just get depressed and want to throw in the towel. Any other beacons of hope that you think that are coming to mind? Oh my goodness, Gary, put me on, on the spot here. Um, okay, so I think there's some, some signs of um, non-denominational Christianity is doing really well. Um, mm. it's, it's, the, it's the only type, only family in Protestant Christianity that's growing. So Lutherans are down, Baptists are down, Methodists are down. So... The SBC is declining rapidly. We all know that. They went from 16.2 million in 2006 to 13.2 million today, so they lost 3 million people. There are 22 million non-denominational Christians in America today. It's it's the second largest, after the Catholic Church, the second largest um, religious group in America today. So I think it, it's not that denominations are declining, which is bad news, but it's just it, Protestantism is being remade in this non-denominational model for good, bad, or indifferent. So 
there's some good things going on there. Like I said, I think belief in America is still relatively robust. Um, I think there's a hard ceiling on the number of nuns. I think we're, we, we're going to, 20 mm-hmm. years down the line, we're going to not see, it's not going to continue to rise like it is right now. So mm-hmm. I think that's good news in, in some weird way. I also think that, you know, if you look at the data, people are more willing to be more open to new experiences now than they've ever been before. Like in post-COVID, I think, like I saw a stat, more people want to travel overseas now than any point in the last 40 years. Yeah. You can see it at the airports. Wow. Absolutely. Like that's a cool thing though from like a religious perspective too because it means they're open to new things. And I think that like to me that's a green shoot of they're open to new experiences and I think religion might be a new experience for some of them. So I think in some ways COVID ruined us and I think in some ways COVID opened us to, to new ideas. And so I think that's my hopefulness is that, that, that people have not changed that dramatically over the last 50 or 100 years. They still need to gather together. I just think religious institutions need to stop operating with a model that they've had for 50 or 75 years. That's not the model that works anymore. There are ways to reach out to these people. They don't hate you, okay? That's mm. the overwhelming sense is they don't hate you. They just don't care about you. So give them reasons to care about you. <laughs> Ryan, this is amazing. Uh, I'm going to have to save the rest for round two, but this is this has been a delightful conversation. I've learned so much. Anything that we haven't talked about that you'd like to share before we wrap up? Oh, I got a plug, of course, Carrie. Um, oh, yeah. Graphsaboutreligion.com is my Substack. That's a good. T- that's a good name, and it carry good branding. It's fantastic. It's yeah. easy. Mm-hmm. You know what you're going to get. Carrie Someone mm-hmm. DM'd me, and it's like, hey, could you like talk to some nuns and like do interview? I go um, tap the sign. It's called graphsaboutreligion.com. <laughs> it literally is just graphs about religion. Twice, two posts a week. You can follow me on social media at Ryan Burge. Um, RyanBurge.net. I've got the Nuns version two, which came out in May. I wrote The Great Dechurching with Jim Davis and Michael Graham. That came out in August. I've got a textbook with Oxford coming out next year called The American Religious Landscape, Facts, Trends, in the Future. Just a really sort of like basic textbook of what American religious demography looks like. Uh, and I got that Great Templeton grant. So I'm going to do a survey of non-religious Americans and hopefully write a book about that that will come out in the next 18 months. And at some point, you'll sleep, right? Listen. I just work very fast, Carrie. That's what I've realized. I work very, very fast. That's and you know what? It makes me happy. And it, the people get they learn about the world and they win, I win, we all win, you know? Absolutely. Ryan, can't thank you enough. Thank Thanks, you so man. much. Appreciate it. Yeah, I didn't think you'd be disappointed with that one. Man, I love that conversation. We have show notes to a lot of the things that we talked about in the show at carrynewhoff.com slash episode six two four. We also have transcripts there, and that is because couple of things. First of all, you keep sharing episodes like this. Thank you for doing that. We're off to a great start in January. And if this episode meant something to you, would you click on the share button, text it to a friend, share it on social media, let us know. And if you would be so kind, leave us a rating and review. I also know because this is a new year and new patterns. If you're a new listener, and a lot of you are, subscribe and you'll never miss an episode, including the next episode in this series. So you can do that wherever you're listening or watching this podcast. Want to make sure you check out our partners on this podcast as well. Craig Rochelle, Chris Hodges, and myself and others have created a brand new course with Westfall Gold called Advance. It's a masterclass video series to help pastors and church leaders grow the courage and skill to unleash generosity in your church. You can learn more at Advance com, or click the link in the description of this episode. And if you're ready to dive into AI, hey, we're going to make it simple. We've got free 
AI-powered tools for content creation, decision-making, marketing, and more, you can go to aicopilot.church or click the link in the description of this episode. That's something that I partnered with church.tech to create just for you. Well, our Church Trend series continues next episode with Brady Shear in the house. We're going to do part four. We're going to talk about all things social media. Man, I learned so much. Stuff about Instagram, TikTok, the best social media strategy for churches, and the new metrics for digital church. Brady and I talked about a lot. Here is an excerpt. He said, I went to the grocery store to pick up my groceries that we had already ordered online. And he's like, I was having a bad day. I'm just waiting. And I'm just like, it, they're, they're taking forever to get it together. They finally bring me my groceries. And the guy looks at me and goes, are you a pastor? Because you've been on my, my TikTok feed this week. Huh. And then that happened to him again a second time where he's a bivocational pastor. And this person came to him and was like, are you also a pastor? Because you were on my TikTok feed. So that's next episode. Also, that continues our Church Trend series. Also coming up this month, John Mark Comer, John Ortberg. Plus, we have Adam Hamilton, Jamie Kern Lima, Craig Rochelle is back. I've got John Chasteen, Jenny Allen, and a whole lot more. So if you subscribe, you'll never miss an episode. And again, if you enjoyed this, thank you so much for sharing and letting us know. Hey, if you want to continue the conversation about 2024 church trends, I've got a leader guide for you. It's a team guide. You can get it at the link in the description of this episode. Got a lot stacked up there. And we're back next time with a fresh episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. And I hope our time together today has helped you identify and break a growth barrier you're facing.